Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. I want to preach today on hometown Jesus. Jesus said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Jesus had a hometown, Nazareth, 90 miles north of Jerusalem in the hills of Galilee. In the time of Jesus, Nazareth was a small town. Today, it's almost exactly the same population as right here in St. Joseph, Missouri. Hometowns have a special place in our heart. Not everyone has a hometown. In our transient age, some people grow up, you know, on the move. But some have a childhood hometown. I do. I grew up in Savannah, Missouri. That's hometown to me. I left there when I was 18, but it's the hometowns are, they just, they lodge somewhere in your heart. The place of your childhood, growing up, adolescence. I've noticed that my, I don't know why, I, and I don't, I'm not interested in someone's analysis of me, so just leave me alone, but <clears throat> I've noticed that for the last couple of years, almost all of my dreams are set in Savannah in my childhood home. Now, I could, I'm, I'm, I'm the, in the dreams, I'm this age, and it's contemporary, but they're always relocated back in my hometown, in my childhood home. I, again, I'm sure somebody knows what that means. I don't care. Uh, probably says something terrible about me. I don't know. Anyway, Jesus had a hometown, and hometowns are, well, it's the place that you know and where you are known. I know Savannah. And there's people there that know me. And Jesus knew Nazareth. We were, we were last in Nazareth uh, two years ago, coming up on two years ago. We were there for my birthday. Remember that we went a little bit ahead of our, of our pilgrimage group and and we, on my birthday, we drove to, from Tel Aviv to Nazareth and spent a couple of days there just really exploring Nazareth. And there was at one point when we were standing on, it was, is it, was a convent, that, that I think it was a convent or something. Yeah, a convent. We were on the roof and they had a garden and terrace there. And I was just looking at the panorama of Nazareth. Now, of course, the city, you know, used to be very small and now it's 70 some thousand uh, so buildings have been constructed, but the topography hasn't changed. The hills that surround Nazareth haven't changed. And I just, I just stood there and thought, Jesus knows this. Jesus knew this from very young, his hometown. Nazareth was for Jesus the place of his family. His mother, his, as it were, father, his brothers, his sisters, his friends. 
I mean, sometimes I think, you know, we have to, you have to remember, Jesus grew up with other kids. <laughs> and he knew them by name. And they knew him. This is, this is Nazareth. So Jesus Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. 1940, Thomas Wolfe published a novel, You Can't Go Home Again. It's where we get that phrase, probably. You can't go home again. The novel is about someone that grew up in a small town, left, achieved some fame and fortune, and then tries to go back home and the problems with that. Jesus would know about that story. Understand, Jesus, he, he was born in Bethlehem, but left there quite early. The human Christ would probably have no memory of Bethlehem. He later relocates in Capernaum during his ministry years, which are brief, but he doesn't live there much. He's always on the move. It's kind of a base. He comes back to it, but he doesn't live there. Jesus lived his life in Nazareth. His Childhood, his adolescence, coming into young manhood. He had a job there. He worked there. He's there for nigh on 30 years. And then he leaves. And he goes to where John the Baptist is preaching and baptizing. Jesus participates in this baptism. And then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights of prayer, fasting, and preparation. Now he's ready to begin his ministry. But he doesn't go back home. He doesn't go to Nazareth. He relocates to Capernaum. Jesus begins to live in the seaside town of Capernaum, right there on the Sea of Galilee. The carpenter has now become a prophet. But after a few months of his itinerant ministry, preaching, teaching, healing, working miracles. He now, for the first time, is going to return to Nazareth. By this time, he's gained some fame. And people are talking about this prophet that has arisen, who's from Nazareth, and is proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God, and he's healing the sick and casting out demons. And he comes back home, hometown. He goes to the synagogue, which is what he did every Sabbath. And they gave him the scroll of Isaiah. And when I say they, I mean Jesus knows every one of them by name. It's the people he's done life with. They know him. He knows them. They know his, I mean, you know, they know Joseph, God rest his soul, and Mary. They know the brothers. They know James and Joseph and Jude and Simon. They know his sisters. But Jesus has left off being a carpenter and he's a preacher. So they, okay, let's give him a shot here. They hand him the book of the scroll of Isaiah and he finds the place that we would call Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. To set at liberty those that are held captive. To bring rescue to the oppressed. 
sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll. Doesn't finish the end of that passage. The passage ends with, and the day of vengeance of our God. He doesn't read that part. He ends with, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And says, and today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus then begins his sermon. He is announcing that Jubilee is arriving. That happy days are here at last. That God truly is good and God is bringing his salvation, his healing, his redemption, his deliverance. God is bringing it now. But what Jesus does that is different and he he says, and he's bringing it for everyone. For everyone, not just for us, but for them too. And he says, you know, in the days of Elijah the prophet, there were many widows in Israel, but it was the Gentile woman, the widow of Zarephath that was provided for. And in the days of Elisha the prophet, ah, oh, there were many lepers in Israel, They weren't healed. Who got healed? Naaman, the Syrian general, a Gentile. Jesus is making clear to them, yes, I have good news. The kingdom is coming. It's the kingdom of God's favor, but it's for everyone. Even enemies. This enraged the synagogue. The synagogue that was not filled with strangers, but with friends and family, people he's done life with. And they drove him out of the synagogue and they took him to the edge of the cliff upon which the city is built. It is precipitous indeed, I've been there. You would not want to be hurled off this cliff. That's where they took him. They were so enraged that Jesus was taking away their religion of vengeance that they, uh, they took him to the cliff to throw him off. We're told that Jesus simply passed through their midst and went his way. I think what happened is Jesus just looked them in the eye. He knows each one of them by name. And I think he looks each one in the eye as if, are you gonna do this? And they stop and they part and Jesus leaves and never returns. He never came back home again. Mark's gospel has a milder account of Jesus' poor reception in Nazareth, but it's equally instructive. I'd like to read it to you. Mark chapter six. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue and many heard him and were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere, 
except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. Because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. All right, there's no cliff in this story that they're trying to throw Jesus off of. But still Jesus is rejected in his hometown. And because of their refusal to believe in him, he can't do much. And the passage ends with us being told that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. So what are we to think of the people of Nazareth? The people of Jesus' hometown. Were they just more dull-witted or hard-hearted than the people of, say, Capernaum? Were they just bad people? What are we to think of the people of Nazareth? Were they just worse than everyone else? No, I don't think so at all. They had simply stumbled at the offense of familiarity. That was their hurdle. They couldn't seem to get over. The offense of familiarity. They thought, how could the Messiah be someone I grew up with? We were kids together. How could that be the Messiah? How could the Messiah be someone whose parents we know? It's Joe and Mary's boy. How, how could the Messiah be someone who has brothers? Like James, Joseph, Jude, Simon, and his sisters. We know his sisters too. How can Messiah be a carpenter, for crying out loud? I mean, a priest, a prince maybe, but a carpenter? You see how it goes. It's easy to be offended by the scandal of familiarity. It was, it was easier for people in Capernaum to believe in Jesus because Jesus wasn't from Capernaum. It's always got to come from somewhere else, doesn't it? Couldn't be here. Oh, it'll happen. It just won't happen here. Not now, not here, somewhere else, some other time. What could have been a great blessing for Nazareth became their stumbling block. And don't forget that Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him until after the resurrection. At one point, they're trying to talk sense into his head. They're saying, just stop this. What are you doing? And we're clearly told they did not believe in him. Why? Because they knew him. I mean, James and Joseph and Jude and Simon, they know their oldest brother, Jesus. Good guy. No way he's the Messiah because he's our brother. We know him. Or so they thought. In thinking they knew Jesus too well, they didn't really know him at all. See law. I'll say that again. In thinking they knew Jesus too well, they barely knew him at all. 
The closer in proximity people were to Jesus, the more likely they were to miss who he really is. You know, there are those who who honestly believe in God. They're not unbelievers in the sense they don't believe in God. They believe in God. They believe in the power of God. They believe that God is at work in the world. They just can't believe that it would be here, now, in our place, in our time. I think this is what the people of, of Nazareth think. They tend to believe that the great works of God belong to a different time or a distant place. It's very easy to think that way. They think, well, yeah, God did great things at the Red Sea with Moses. God did great things at Mount Carmel with Elijah. God did great things at Jerusalem with David. But in Nazareth, with Jesus, the carpenter, it doesn't work that way. This is the problem of hometown Jesus. Nazareth had a problem with Jesus being from their hometown. That belongs to history. Here's our problem. Today, we who live in the West, we all live in Jesus' hometown. If you were brought up in Europe or America, you were raised in Jesus' hometown. Jesus is hometown Jesus to you. Everyone in Western society grew up with Jesus. We're all from Jesus' hometown now. I mean, you grew up, you know, you know his parents. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, you know his parents. You've grown up with him. You know his story, you know about him. We've known about Jesus all our lives. It's hometown Jesus for us. We're not from Capernaum, we're not from Jericho, we're from Nazareth. All of America and Europe is Nazareth. And we're in danger of stumbling over the scandal of familiarity. Concerning his hometown, we're told that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. He's like, that's amazing. They don't believe in me. I think today the same thing could be said about Jesus' attitude toward Western society. Europe and America. In the 21st century, I think Jesus is probably amazed at our unbelief. Let's look at the problem a little closer. Mark tells us that Jesus' hometown was offended because of the familiarity. They, they, they just knew him. They, were, they grew up with him. There wasn't a time they didn't know Jesus. And this became a problem. They knew all about Jesus, but they didn't expect anything new or powerful from him. I mean, he's great. You know, you need a carpenter. He's a great carpenter. But we're not looking for much more than that. They stumbled over their familiarity and were told they refused to believe him. They refused. The implication is that there was a choice. They could have believed, but they refused. A choice was involved. But they refused. Oh, that's also our predicament 
trying to have faith in the age of empiricism. We're, we're led to believe you can't choose to believe. Oh no, you must be overwhelmed with incontrovertible evidence. There can be no choice involved. You just have to be wrestled to the ground and he has to be proven to you. And until then, if you, if you are just even trying to believe, that's illegitimate. That's the age in which we live. Give me the evidence. Well, faith is the evidence in response to revelation. And then we leap to faith. My counsel to you is choose to believe what your heart already wants to believe about Jesus. If, if you want to believe he's the son of God, the savior of the world, then leap to that. Don't, don't wait around for some, I don't know what you're waiting for. Some PBS documentary that'll prove it to you. Some archaeologist to dig up some, we found the evidence. I'll see if I can do that line again. Wasn't prepared. People try to stop me, shake me up in my mind. Say, prove to me he's Lord. Show me a sign. What kind of sign they want? When it all comes from within. What's lost has been found and what's to come has already been. I just keep pressing on. You've been given a revelation. It's been proclaimed. Jesus is the son of God, the savior of the world. Something moves in here. And then you say, no, I have to have more. No, move toward that. Move toward it. Don't refuse to believe. Say, yes. Jesus himself said, if you want to know if I'm from God, do my will. Don't just sit back and be skeptical and ah, prove it to me. You, you demand signs like that from Jesus. Jesus, I'll give you no sign. I mean, I'll rise from the dead, but that'll just be witness to you and you have to decide how to respond to it. Faith is a dance. It's a dance. Ever heard the, ever heard the phrase, it takes two to tango? A dance. It's a dance. It's a dance. J Jesus comes to you and says, man, I have this dance. We dance with me. It's a choice. Jesus is not some pathetic bachelor dancing for lonely with a mannequin. Because no one will dance. No, Jesus gives you the invitation. And then you have to, am I going to dance with Jesus? He invites me to believe in him. Okay. And you begin to dance. Now, I'm using a, a metaphor for faith as a dance. I think that's a good one. I'm not actually a dancer. I don't know if you know this about me. There are a few things in life. In fact, I'm not sure that I know of anything in life that I find more dreadful than having to dance in public. <laughs> Speak in public, okay, or you know. Pack of wild dogs, eh, I think I can survive it. Dance with people, dance in public. I, I just, I, I avoid any possible scenario where that might come up. <laughs> but then this summer, our youngest son got married. Philip married Sarah. So we have two Sarahs now. Sarah Jean and Sarah Rose. I did the, I did the, I performed the ceremony 
That was easy. I know how to do that. It was in Estes Park, our home away from home that we love so dearly. Actually, at a place that we've been to so many, many times. So I'm all very comfortable. And then afterwards, there's a reception with dancing involved. Now, my plan is just to be jovial, be friendly, but avoid dancing at all costs. And I think I was beginning to pull it off until the mother of the bride, the mother of, not the brother, not the mother of the groom, the mother of the bride, the mother of my new daughter-in-law asked me to dance. And I thought, I have no choice. I mean, I do, but I don't. <laughs> Gotta go for it. So I did. <laughs> I don't think it was pretty, but nobody seemed to care. That's the point. You, you always do have a choice. There really is a choice. But when Jesus says, I want this dance, say yes. You said to Jesus, I'm no good at dance. He says, I know. It's just, it's okay. Just move with me. I think that's how faith works. Now, part of spiritual growth is the capacity to discern what Jesus is doing in and around us. Not, not way off there. I read in a magazine what Jesus is doing in India. Great. Praise God. But part of spiritual growth is to discern what Jesus is doing in and around us in our immediate proximity in our very own life. So how do we do that? Well, we stay engaged with Jesus and we seek Jesus and we sit with Jesus and we talk with Jesus and we listen to him. We don't just wait for Jesus to sort of burst on the scene completely unanticipated and do something undeniable. What we do is we seek Jesus, sit with Jesus, talk to Jesus, listen to Jesus. Jesus is found by those who seek him, not those who are apathetic and skeptical. Those that, sit along the, those that sit along the edge of the wall and refuse to dance. That's not gonna be the ones that are gonna find him. So ask Jesus to show you what, I mean, just make that your prayer. Jesus, make it a daily prayer. Jesus, show me what you're doing in my life and right around me. Pray that, pray that every day, pray that for a while and then pay attention. Just keep your spiritual eyes and ears open and pay, oh, I see, I see it now. I see Jesus is here among us. He isn't just doing things way off in another place or another time. He's actually doing things right here and I'm recognizing it. And as you seek to actively engage with Jesus by faith, expect Jesus to challenge you and change you. I mean, you know, the first dance may be uncomfortable because Jesus is here to change you. Yeah, he's your friend. He loves you. But he's also here to, I mean, do you understand that saving you involves changing you? <laughs> Do you, wave at me if you get that. The saving you involves changing you. Jesus, save me. Don't change anything. Just save me. No, 
saving you involves changing you. Think of it this way. Jesus unconditionally is for you, but he may not be on your side. Think that through. Jesus is unconditionally for you. Always. Unconditionally for you. He may not be on your side. This is the problem that Nazareth had. Jesus is for Nazareth. He's for them. He's for them. He's for every one of them. He knows them by name. He loves them. He's for them. But when they say to him, and Jesus, you got to be on our side in hating our enemies. He says, I'm not going to be on your side like that. I'll be for you, but I'm not going to join your team that ultimately is forged around hatred. This is what made Jesus' hometown so angry. Jesus wants to save us from any toxic us versus them religion. Because we can become addicted to cathartic hate. That is a kind of hatred toward an other, usually another group, that gives us a sense of belonging with our own group, our us group. And what we are what we do to belong to the us group is we hate them, whoever they are. They're out there. We hate them. And it's very, it's cathartic hatred. Now, we don't call it that. We give it all kinds of noble euphemisms. We have noble names for our justice, our righteousness, our holiness. Our, we're true Christians, as opposed to them. We give noble euphemisms to our cathartic hatred, but that's just all it is. And Jesus wants to save us from any addiction to cathartic hatred. So yes, we all live in Jesus' hometown now. But we don't have to make the mistake of Nazareth. We can wake up and believe the good news. We can believe in Jesus again anew. Jesus is right here, right here. You don't have to get on a plane and go somewhere. He's right here. Jesus is in our hometown. He's right here. And he's the son of God and he's the savior of the world and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's right here. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. Yeah, praise the Lord. Hometown Jesus. This morning, along with the sacrament of communion, which we partake of every Sunday, we also have the sacrament of baptism. We have seven people, I believe, that are to be baptized, and I would like to invite them, and if they're children, their parents, to come down to uh, the front. Just, just line up here in front of this communion table. We're going to put you at the head of the line for communion, and so that you can have time to get ready to be baptized, come, come down here. Give them a hand as they come. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, there you are. And so, Baptism Sunday, awesome. Yeah, I've, been, I've talked to you about that, you're right, amen. And so what we're going to do is, well, well, we always do this, but it has even deeper meaning on these kind of Sundays. We're going to begin by confessing our faith, the Apostles' Creed. 
comes from the very beginning of Christianity. It was, guess what, a baptismal creed. This is what people for 2,000 years have been saying as a statement of their faith before their baptism. So we're going to do that, and then we're going to have our prayer of confession, and then we will have communion, and we'll take you to get prepared for baptism. Everybody, you here, but everybody here in the sanctuary, confess with me our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins and receiving the Lord's forgiveness. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is merciful to all who confess their sins. And in humility, ask for his grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often, you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. 